Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you, people, it happened this year again. Um, Halloween. Now, when I was a kid, I grew up in the suburbs, you know, right in New Jersey, across the bridge from Philadelphia. And on Halloween, it was a big day. We would have to go. We were in a neighborhood. So we'd walk from, you know, you'd walk to Barkley Farms and Crescent Woods and then Woodcrest. And you worked, man. You worked and worked. You walked around and you got candy. And you got so much candy and it was great. But now here I live in Burbank and I live in a, in a complex. I live in a townhouse in a complex in the middle of the downtown where there's about 87 more complexes. And we did not get one trick-or-treater. Not one. And that has happened like every year. And it cracks me up because for me, when I was a kid, this would have been the perfect the perfect situation. You could go out maybe for two hours and hit pay dirt, but no, it's been like five years in a row, no kids, and I don't really, I'm not a big candy eater. And so, you know, I bought some candy, I bought some Whoppers, because I know Joanne will eat them if, you know, we if we don't give them away, but it really stuck. So anyway, enough about that. I have a great guest today, which the actor Perry King. How you doing, Perry? Good, Steve. How are you? Although I'm worried about you. If you're only as hip as your guest, yeah. you're, you're in trouble, man. No, you know what? I, I read about you. You, you, you drive the, the Harleys. You drive the race cars. I mean, you're hip. I mean, you're a hip guy. That's We're not even going to go into that. You're an Ivy Leaguer. I mean, we, you're hip. You know, that's that's all. You're like, I leave, uh, that hardly makes you some uh, somebody hip. I, Ivy League? I, usually I tried to hide that. I was, uh, my first 10 careers are... Uh, 10 years of my career, I hit that as much as I could. Well, it's funny, though, because me, I grew up in a real Jewish town, and I, I was the uh, the goy, as they would say. I was a minority, and 85% of my town was Jewish. I, I think 50% of my high school went to the Ivy League, so we were like, really? oh, Ivy League was cool. Yeah. You know, It was a cool thing. Yeah, my, I went to Yale, and my two roommates at Yale for the two years that I was on campus were Jewish. Great guys. Smart as well. Oh my God, they'd bail me out of trouble. I'd get it doing. Well, you're from the, you're from Ohio originally. Yeah. Okay. Now, is it true? I don't know because I always read, and you never know what you read. But your great 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 grandfather signed the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, actually, I'm descended from two people who signed okay. that document. Roger Sherman, who was the only guy that signed all three of the founding documents. I think the Articles of Confederation, which were then thrown out for the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, those three, I think he signed, and also a man named John Morton. My, you know, my family was Mayflower. My mother's family came okay. over on the Mayflower, and uh, one time I said to my mother, she was a tough old New England Yankee lady, died at 97, never in a hospital a day in her life, that kind of lady. And uh, one time I said, isn't it great that we're descended from, actually from Priscilla Mullins and John Alden, those two. And she said, oh, Perry, lots of people are. Yeah. <laughs> In other words, don't get full of yourself because you don't deserve to be. And I agree with her completely. It means it's only interesting. It, that's all it means is it's interesting. History is fascinating, but it means nothing about me. But how did you end up in Ohio? Did they, I mean, was it? Well, my mother was uh, social register uh, New York and hated that world. Uh, didn't want any part of it. Her father was a guy named Max Perkins, whom they're just starting a movie about right now. Okay. Colin Firth is playing him, actually. Uh, Perkins was an editor at Scribner's, and he edited Thomas Wolfe, Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, James Jones, Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings. You know, he's a he was considered the the great editor of the 20th century, and uh, and. She was raised in New York, and she hated that world, and she met this doctor who just graduated Harvard and 
was working at Bellevue, and he came from Ohio. He was going back to my father. He was going to be practicing in Ohio, and she did it to get away from that world. My father took her back to Ohio, thinking he had this wonderful social register girl right. who loved parties <laughs> and showing off, and instead, she just wanted to hide. She didn't want anything to do with that. It was something they never resolved, you know? That's funny. Now, now it seems like her background was somewhat in the arts field because of the her father. Now, how did yeah, you, what, at, at a young age, did you want to act? When did you start following the acting dream i mean because in ohio it's also different because it's not like you know if you live in new york you know you can gravitate to it but you know and how did you how did that start well actually it's it's uh, do you know dorian harewood that actor Heard black actor yeah a wonderful actor anyway he he grew up in ohio a lot of actors come from ohio dorian once said ohio is the perfect place for a for an actor to grow up because you have to imagine everything <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> which is tough in ohio i actually i love ohio and the people are wonderful there but uh Anyhow, uh, my my grandfather, Perkins, was married to a lady who had been an actress when he met her. And he laid down the law, as men did back then and could could do back then. And he said, "You, I want to marry you, but I don't want you to ever be an actress again. So she quit, although she resented that as well. She had a right to. And, uh, and I think I inherited that from her and my uh, grandmother, Louise. I named my daughter after her. And, uh, and she and I got to share that love of acting. When I was in my teen, teenage years and I was going to summer stock and, and doing first little roles and stuff, she and I got to share that. And uh, Laura Linney is playing her in this movie they're about to do called Genius about, okay. about that whole family, actually. Now, so you, you're doing the little acting parts and you're, you're, you've got the bug, I'm sure. And now you, you, you decide to go to Yale. Mm -hmm. Now was your... Were you, did you go for theater, or what was your major? Oh, I went for theater. I I figured out. I my story is like a, a lot of actors, most almost all actors. I I was in a play when I was twelve years old in this school, this prep school I went to, and uh, and I wasn't paying much attention to it. Didn't seem to be fun, particularly. I was playing the stenographer, I think, in the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. The day that we gave the performance, it was school. It was one performance. I was behind the curtain, waiting for the curtain to go up, and I heard the audience come in. And then they quieted, and the curtain went up, and the lights went out on the audience, and up full bright on the stage and on me. And I had the experience that almost every actor is, has, which is I thought, my God, this is it. This is what I want to do. Now, I've since learned that, you know, I'm 67, I think, now. And I know a lot about psychology, partly from acting. And the truth is, that's a very neurotic impulse. Okay. The impulse is, I want attention. I want validation. I want people to look at me, you know? Uh, but you think at the time it's all about art and creation. Right. And, and, you know, actors, to be fair, I mean, there are some actors that have contributed hugely to the world. The world would be a less wonderful place without Bobby De Niro or Meryl Streep or Laurence Olivier, you know? Um, but it's a neurotic impulse, and those those the good actors know that. Olivier said it's a ridiculous way for a grown man to make a living. That's crazy, and it's absolutely true. It's an absurd way to make a living. So, so you go to Yale. Yes, and, and I went there for the theater. You know, I knew beyond any doubt I wanted to be an actor. So, and, and so it was four years. Yep. And then now, after that, you went to Juilliard. Yes, I went to Juilliard. I actually. Um, had it set up to get a, a, a scholarship to Lambda, which is the oldest acting school in the world in London, a great acting school. But it was 1970 and the draft and the Vietnam War, and I couldn't leave the country until that got settled one way or the other. By the time I'd received a 4F, because I have a something called Raynaud's Phenomena, uh, it's not important, but anyway, it got me 
out of the army. So then I could go to acting school, but by that point I'd missed uh, Lambda. So I went to Juilliard, which is every bit as good, maybe better. Yeah. So you, you're you're doing you you go to one school, great Ivy League school, and then you go to Juilliard. Mm-hmm. So then, now, when do you start getting an agent, or do you sit there and go, "I'm going to go to L.A.?" Or how did your career start? You I got, you got work? so lucky. The beginning of my career is about as lucky as it gets. I was uh, going to Juilliard. And uh, I'd met this lady, this wonderful lady named Jane Oliver, who um, had a whole series of different accidents. But anyway, a wonderful woman who became really the the partner to Sly Stallone through a movie I did called The Lords of Flatbush. She great, met Sly. Yeah, great movie. Played Chico. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and she helped Sly make Rocky happen. She Sly did it, but... She helped very importantly. He dedicated, I think, the third Rocky to her. She died very young. In any case, so she had seen me in a play at Yale, and she asked me to audition for this movie. I was three months at Juilliard with John Hausman running the program, the great John Hausman, you know, this iconic figure. And and I went to this audition for a movie with Shirley MacLaine. And I figured they'd throw me out the door, you know. What did I know about anything? And because I wasn't worried about getting it, I knew I wouldn't get it. I did this audition, then I did a screen test with Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> All of this just seemed astounding to me, but just fun. I knew that at some point they were going to say, get the hell out of here. Right, right. Quit wasting our time. <laughs> Instead, because I was so relaxed, I think, I got it. I got the part. Of Lords of Flatbush. No, I'm no. talking about a movie with Shirley MacLaine called The, the Possession of Joel Delaney. Okay playing Joel Delaney, so the lead. brother, the lead, the title lead, opposite Shirley MacLaine, a magnificent part. It was really two parts in one. It was this crazy guy who was her brother or, and or this murderous uh, Puerto Rican killer. Okay. But And so the question is, is he possessed by the spirit of this dead man or is he schizophrenic? What's going on? It was really the beginning of Shirley MacLaine's spiritualism that's that became so important to her life it was right at the beginning of that in any case i did that part um i went to john Hausman and said what should i do should I, every teacher there said turn it down study you know that didn't seem right it's, an incredible yeah, it's so funny they say it. it's like you, you're sitting there and you got it because one you didn't care when you said i'm not gonna well I, I just didn't ever think for a second i had a yeah, chance you didn't stress and then yeah. the funny thing is it, it's given that you have talent because they cast you. So I always crack up. But for me, if I was an acting teacher, I go take it. Well, that's what John Hausman said. He said a wonderful thing to me, and this is why he was such a great, great leader of acting schools and everything he did with Orson Welles. And um, he said, Perry said, I think an actor should work when he can work and study when he can't. He said, do the part. If you want to come back, the place is open to you. But I never did because I just kept working. I got this incredibly lucky beginning. Now. What's that? Forty-five years ago, I think. Yeah, forty-five years ago. Seventy-two. Yeah, so uh, yeah, forty. Uh, yeah. Well, it came out in seventy-two. We shot it in seventy-one. Uh, but in any case, I look back now, and I'm telling you, that's the best part I've ever had. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's so funny because I thought at the time I thought, wow, this is a pretty good way to get going, you know. But now it's it's. And then four years later, I was standing in an unemployment line here in in Hollywood. And uh, in front of me, two guys were talking, and one was saying to the other, he said, just hang in there, man. You'll get your break. He said, a couple years ago, I was in New York, and this kid out of nowhere gets this incredible part. He, you know, just out of nowhere. He, he got his break. You'll get yours. 
And, you know, and he mentioned the film and he was talking about me and I tapped him on the shoulder (laughs) and I said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I'm standing behind you in the unemployment line. That's funny. Well, you know what I was going to say? It must have been when you did Lords of Flatbush, that was one of those movies that when it came out, because it takes place in New York. Yes. It's, you know, it's got, you guys got, you're the greasers, you got the jackets. And I'm just wondering, because when it came out, it, it probably got a minor release. But then two years later, when Rocky takes off, and Stallone's his household name, I bet a lot more people watched that movie oh, yeah, then because sure it was it. like, wait, you know, Stallone yeah. was not, I think that's what happened to yeah. me because it was like, I watched it and it was it was a good movie. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's really pretty good. It's a it's like a love letter to that period of time. And there's a good example because I had to hide from them that I went to Yale. Henry Winkler and I both hid from them. We didn't want anybody to know where we studied. We, we auditioned in character. That was the fun before I was known, before anybody knew anything about me. I could audition in character. So I'd walk in trying to be the guy, okay. not act him, but be him, because I learned very early on that directors, or at least for film, directors and producers don't want to hire an actor to play a part. They want to hire the guy who is the part. So... I showed up talking like this, you know, the whole thing. Oh, yeah, and every other word is out of your mouth is the F word. You know? Right, yeah. That's the way they talk. And uh, I didn't let him know until halfway through the movie. I went to, <laughs> Henry and I went to one of the two directors, uh, Stephen Verona and Marty Davidson. They did a great job working together on that. And uh, we went to Stephen and he said, Stephen, do you realize you've cast as yourself? I was playing him and, and his best friend, Butchie, Henry's part. I said, do you realize you've cast two Yaleys? Two Ivy League Yaleys? That's funny. And he didn't believe us. He thought we were kidding, see, because we, we kept talking like this. You realize, right. what, you hired me? <laughs> do, do you get it? I don't even want to talk the way I really should talk then, because you can't do it on radio, I assume. So so you, what, what made you leave New York? Because you had, you had some parts. You just said, you, I have to come to L.A. Was that the thing? Because, you know, you had... Yeah, Henry and I actually came out here together on a plane. We, we both, we found out we'd booked ourselves on the same plane. We thought it was time. After the Lords, we finished shooting it. I went to Washington. I was doing Shakespeare. One day I was shooting a Brooklyn Hood in a movie. And the next day I was doing Shakespeare on stage in the Delacorte Theater in Washington. And after that was over, um, we, I, it was time to come to LA you know it seemed like the right time to break in plus I hated living in New York you know I loved the work the work is superb in New York the art of of acting is there there's no doubt about it out here it's the business but New York's like living in a prison a concrete prison you know you never see anything green I'm an outside guy right I love the outside and LA's got a lot more of it now what I always ask I always ask my guests because this always cracks me up and you moved here a long time ago where was the first place you moved do you remember your first apartment in LA because everyone has great stories and I always say because a lot of you know because I come from back east and back east you know when it's a bad neighborhood but LA you don't because you sit there and you go right. you have to look at the I mean I've learned now if you see a lot of check cashing places or fast food joints that might not be the best area to move because yeah. I think it's just a weird thing but for well, you again, I think I got lucky because I ended up in uh Oh, what's the name of that canyon? It's right beside Laurel Canyon, just east of Laurel Canyon. Little tiny canyon road. Coldwater? Uh, no. No, uh, east. East of Laurel. Sure. Just east of Laurel. Um, no, I can't remember. I can't think of it. So, But, yeah. that, but gotta... this little thing, and I found this little, you know, sort of back of a house that was for rent back there. I had a wife and a and a child at that time, a little baby. So, um, so I had to find a place for all of us and bring them out here. <laughs> 
So you get out here, and it's got to be a big. It's got to be a big move. Now you have some credits under your belt. You know, you have the movies, Becky's. Do you find an agent right away, or does that take a little time? Well, I found one. Work? One had contacted me, and that's another reason I came out here. But honestly, all that stuff about credits and stuff really means nothing. You you got to start all over. When I got out here, we all had to start all over. Henry did too. I remember he and I. We had no money, and we go and among other things, we'd walk down Sunset Boulevard and listen to the spiel from the massage girls. There were all those massage parlors, okay. and we just hear the spiel because we couldn't afford to do anything if we wanted to, you know. But then after a couple weeks, I remember Henry came to me at that place that you reminded me I, I read it. And he said, <laughs> he, he tells me he didn't say this, but I know damn well he said this. He said, hey, Barry, I got a gig. He said, I got something to do, just something to do until something important comes along. And it was happy days. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because something, I mean, I, I remember because, I mean, as I say, I, I love old TV. And I remember happy days in the beginning. Right. He was a side character. And he wore yeah. a blue jacket. He didn't even wear the leather jacket. Yeah. He wore this blue, like, like a like a jacket Absolutely. my father would golf in. And the reason that, that Fonz became what he became is Henry was that good. He was so good. I would watch him at Yale do extraordinary parts. I mean, the sad thing, when you get nailed to a part like that, the sad thing, and I think Henry probably feels this, is that you you don't ever get the opportunity to show people what your range is. At Yale, he played all kinds of different parts, and he had an enormous range. He could do, on stage, just about anything, you know? But his his audition, his audition, I remember he told me, was basically a version of Sly. I mean, he, he went in there, and he was playing this greaser, and in the movie of, of The Lords of Flatbush, Butchie really isn't a greaser. Right. Uh, something else, you know, he's, he's, uh, but for his audition for Happy Days, he went in there and did a version of Sly. Now, when Sly says, hey, you know, oops, excuse me, I bumped the table. When he says, hey, like that on film in the Lords, for example, it's scary because Sly is scary. Right. When Henry says it, it's, hey, yeah. it's lovely. It's warm. <laughs> it's Henry, you know? So that all, it's a perfect example of the difference between film and television. You know, film, they always say film, the lead in a film should make you nervous as if he's about to do something dangerous. And the lead in a television show ought to make you comfortable. It should be somebody you want to invite into your house. And that's a perfect example of that because they were really playing the same character. But when it comes through the filter of Henry Winkler, it's a guy you like. Right. And that's true because yeah. you like the Fonz. The Fonz yeah, is cool. Absolutely. You know, it's okay. You, know, you, you always like Henry. You like Henry. No one gets Anything he yeah. does, even when he plays a bad guy, he's the oh. likable bad guy. It's, it's just his nature. So you're working and then I guess you're, now, were you getting any pilots back then? Because I know you, you kind of say you were on a show called The Quest, but I know so many people who came out and they got booked in pilots that never went. Did you go through that well, at all? Well, what I did for a while, I mean, it took a while to get rolling. I did a lot of episodic TV, which is what everybody does, you know, and I did a couple uh, Hawaii Five O's, for example. Um, that kind of usual stuff, canon, um, all the all the typical Granted. stuff, you know, that was around at the time. And they were fun. I mean, Jack Lord was wonderful to me. Everybody always said he was a tough guy to work with, but I loved him. He was very... When he saw you trying your best, that's, that's a characteristic I've noticed in every really good actor I've ever worked with is if they see you doing the best you can, even if it's crappy, they respect you and help you. That's what they respect. Everybody, a real professional, respects you doing the best you can. If you're doing a terrific job, but it's not your best, like Shirley MacLaine taught me that. She was so great on that film that I did. God, I loved working with her, and she taught me a lot. And there was a guy there. I was very, very sloppy in that film, didn't know what I was doing, wasting time. I mean, I was doing the best I could, but it wasn't very good. But she was very kind to me and generous. 
There was a guy on, and this is the possession of Joel Delaney, who was, I think, the first AD. And uh, he was very good at his job, clearly very good, but he wasn't trying very hard. And he would be very insulting to people. I remember he'd say, when he called for the actors, he'd say, bring on the puppets. You know, and there's no need to be insulting like that. And one day, she just stomped him into the dust. And uh, he deserved it completely. And she'd waited a long time. But I've always felt the lesson she taught me by that was don't fight with somebody if you can possibly avoid it. But if you are going to fight with them, destroy them right away. And I've always heard what you say. I've talked to a lot of people who've been on a lot of TV shows. And they always say, you can always tell when it's a happy set when you walk in. Like they all say, you know, if you go into NCIS and Mark Harmon, mm-hmm. it's one of the happy, they go, you walk on and you go, hey, you look around and you go, wait, everybody's smiling. Oh, everybody's nice. And I think, yeah. I think when there's a jerk like that guy from the movie you were in, yeah. I think it's like eggshells somewhat because you're sitting there and you go in and it's like, wait yeah. a second, you know, we're, we're, we're all in the same boat. We Absolutely. want a good product. Absolutely. So you're, you're doing the episodics mm-hmm. and now uh, you, you Rip Tide well, was your second, Quest was your first series? Oh, I think I did several pilots over the years. Um, I'd have to look on my list to even remember. It's, it's so long. I mean, I know it goes on forever. <laughs> now, now, but Riptide, which just, just shows you how lucky I've been. Yeah, I mean, you, you said you look. It's like you look like it's eighty four, eighty four. I mean, a bunch of shows, yeah. and that's always great. And you have longevity. Uh, now, Riptide, as I said, you know, a lot of uh, kids don't know about Riptide. Riptide was one of those. As I said, I graduated college in eighty six, so that was like a kind of show that like you and your dorm buddies would watch. Yeah, because it yeah. was just, it was just, you guys were just cool. I mean, what was that like playing? Because, I mean, a lot of people watched the show. It was terrific fun to do. The only thing that was a negative was that we worked so damn hard. You always felt like you'd been hit by a couple of trucks, you know. We just got exhausted. We'd work literally 15-hour days, you know. And then we'd have a drive maybe an hour each way, and we'd have to learn the lines for the next day. So you could never get more than about six hours of sleep. And I used to skip lunch and sleep for half an hour at lunch because I needed the sleep more than the food. Right. That was the only negative. Otherwise, it was great. And I love both those guys. And we got along so well. We were really a team. I mean, we're still good friends today. We get together, the three of us, Joe Penny, Tom Bray, and I. So it was really wonderful. It was like, I never thought of this before, but it was like the Lords. Because the four of us in the Lords of Flatbush were, were a real gang. When we were shooting that film, we'd, it was so low budget that you walk around the corner and nobody knew you were shooting a movie. Right. You know? So we'd walk around the corner. And we were a gang. I remember a couple of times Sly got into fights with people. And Henry and Paul Mace, the fourth guy who died years ago, sadly, and I, we would dive into those fights with Sly. We didn't question what was going on. We didn't care if he was right or wrong or why he was fighting. We were a gang. You know, if he was fighting, we fought. See, that's so cool. And yeah. with, with Riptide, what was it like? Because, you know, you were, you were doing episodic TV and, you know, and, and people would recognize you from the early work. I mean, sure, Lords of Flatbush. But now all of a sudden, and I always try to tell you know a lot of people don't understand that you know back at that time in like 84 and 85 when you were on a hit show everyone watched it it's like we don't yeah. we, we would watch this we would watch yeah. miami vice right? oh yeah we'd, we'd all want right. to dress like you guys because you guys were cool like oh, you and that, Joe those days were cool are so guys. you're so right those days are so gone now yeah, i mean how many i mean people? now there's 20 or 30 or 40 shows that people right. are watching now you would be if you were a hit you were the thing right see before that before i did a few pilots, and then I did Riptide. Before that, I was doing miniseries. Remember miniseries, how big they were? Yeah, they're, they're huge. And I must have done 
five or six big miniseries. And the biggest one, the best one I ever did, was something called Captains and the Kings. Okay. And that was uh, just such a pleasure to do because while we were shooting it, it was the hit. This is maybe 78 or 9, something like that. And uh, the whole country was watching this while we were shooting it. I mean, it was so much fun to be in this hit and know that what we were doing on the set that day was going to be watched in a couple of weeks or a month by the whole country. Right. Now, that, that kind of thing is just gone there. It doesn't exist anymore. Now, how does that change your life? Because, I mean, you go from, you know, not I'm an enemy, but I'm an, whatever the word is. But yeah, you go from people, people know who you are. It's like anything, you know. But then all of a sudden... Even with Riptide in this miniseries, it's like a soap opera star too. Like people, I mean, people must just stop. And you were you were like one of those heartthrob guys, like you and Gregory Harrison and all that. You know, you guys all had you know. Did people just like bother you? Did I mean did you not, not bother you? But not much. Did, I never got much of that. Uh, I got some. I got just enough. It always seemed to me to to make my life really interesting. And I also occasionally got a little more than that to the point that I really learned that. Uh, Actually, I've come to believe that fame is not only not something to be sought after, it's something to be avoided at all costs. Fame is like real fame, not the kind I had, but the big fame, you know, if you're, I don't know, Brad Pitt. Right. You know, it's like salt on a steak. A little bit of it improves your life and any more than a little ruins it. Right. So salt, you know, if you spill the salt shaker on your steak, you've killed the steak. You've ruined it. Somebody like Brad Pitt or, or Sly, for example. Oops, excuse me. It's all right. Like, uh, like Sly, I haven't seen him for years now, but I, I'm sure he can't walk anywhere. He can't, yeah, he can't do what I can do. Right. I can do. I can do... I've had this lovely career that's supported me for years and been terif- terrific fun. But I can walk down the street. I can go where I want. So I would hate to give that up. Now, you don't really get a choice. It sounds like I'm saying I made a good choice and other people didn't. Not at all. You don't, you don't choose that. That stuff chooses you. And uh, what I got was a matter of my good fortune. Uh, you don't get to, to pick how famous you want to be or how you could, I suppose argue that somebody could drop out altogether and some people do that right but but essentially um, nobody looks for a degree of fame you know but the fact is that it's uh the the few times i remember once when i did a a miniseries called i'll take manhattan which was also a big hit at the time and i apologize that's all right i'll turn that thing off and uh and at one point i went into new york and i was doing a bunch of press on it and um I was stuck in a men's room. The 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 uh, secretaries working in the building had found out where I was, and they knew. And I started to go out to the men's room, and there was a pack of secretaries out there, and I couldn't get out. That's funny. <laughs> now that's about the the most extreme it ever got for me. But I remember being in there thinking, I don't like this. You know, right. this I, is not pleasant. I mean, it would be fun to have one or two girls smiling at me, saying, "Oh, I'd love to meet you," but. Not a whole pack. Yeah, I mean, you can't. When it, when it, when it affects each other your mind, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's not pleasant. I, I want to talk more about your career, but I also want to get into, I read somewhere and uh, that you're a race car and motorcyclist. Yes. When, how did, how did, because that's so cool. Like, yeah, how did, yeah. Did you, did you ride bikes when you were younger or when did you find I've this I've always love? ridden motorcycles. Okay. I rode them long before I was legal to ride them. Okay. I, and I won't even, I don't even want to tell you how I managed to do that because it was highly illegal. Right. <laughs> and, and I, even my father didn't, never knew 
that I was doing that. But I love motorcycles. I just adore them. I just, I can't live without them. Now, I had one accident back in 1970, right before Juilliard. I arrived at Juilliard with my leg in a big cast, unable to walk properly on it. Um, and it's an accident that happens to everybody on a motorcycle at some point. This guy turned left in front of me, and I wasn't prepared. Um, so I stayed off bikes for about three years when I was in New York. And when I got to L.A., I thought, for me, it seems silly to somebody who doesn't love motorcycles. But my thought was, for me, life without motorcycles just isn't worth living. I love them so much. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go back to riding, but I'm going to do it and get really serious about safety and skill. And since that's, that time, I've studied it at great length. I'm on the board of the American Motorcyclist Association. Okay. Um and I've, you know, I own, oh God, so many motorcycles. But. How do you, how do you go, well, I mean, how do you pick a motorcycle, when you have, what do you have, how many like, motorcycles, I mean, 15, oh, 20? No, I think I've got 30 at this, 29. Okay. So when when you're getting them, you know, you're, and you've been riding for a long time, and I'm sure people like different kinds of motorcycles, do you sit there and go, okay, I'm going to get a Harley for this kind of riding, I'm going to get this for this, I mean, how do you, like if you said, someone said, you know, if someone said to you, hey, Perry, what kind of motorcycle should I get? What would you say as a motorcycle enthusiast? What would you tell them? What would you oh, say? Oh, yeah, and I know, and people do that all the time, and I say, what kind of riding are you going to do? Where okay. are you go, what are you going to do with it? So let's say I wanted to take highway rides, like with okay. the, like five other bikes. And a Harley is a great bike. Okay. Absolutely great bike. Now, what I like to do is what's called, these days, called adventure riding, where you get a bike that's sort of like an SUV, a motorcycle okay. SUV, so you can go anywhere on it. I love exploring trails and woods and stuff. I just bought something that's going to be so helpful to me. I love to do that by myself, most of all, not with anybody, just alone in the forest. I have a cattle ranch up north, and there's this beautiful forest north of me, and I go down these trails and tracks and single tracks and disappear into this forest. But I always worry about getting hurt and not being able to get back out, right. you know, and a cell phone won't work. Pretty much any place you go where you need it to work, it won't work. So I just bought something called a Spot, I think it's called, and it's a, it's satellite. And basically for 100 bucks a month, a uh, year, you you have it with you. If you push a button, a helicopter comes and gets you. Okay. So that's simple. You push a button, you say, help. And they come and they get you. So now I can do that safely. Now, how did you end up buying a cattle ranch? Did you did you have an affinity for cattle? Or I mean, I, I've, I've said that Not some for guys cattle, do it. But it's all part, I think, of the same thing. Because when I was a kid, I'd watch Bonanza. You remember okay. Bonanza? And, oh, yeah. Oh, God, I loved that. And I wanted to own the Ponderosa, right? And uh, long story short, I'm living up in the Sierra Nevadas, but just in a house. And, I, and there was this cattle ranch that came up for sale I'd, I'd actually met a bunch of cowboys there they'd they were helping me one guy in particular was helping me for a western i was going to play and so i wanted to learn everything i could so i could you know just all the details that's one of the most fun things about acting is all the stuff you have to learn that you would never learn otherwise you know so i was learning uh little details about you know um Oh, mounting a horse, for example. Okay. If you ever see somebody get on a, a Western saddle and they put their left hand on the horn and their right hand on the cantle, you know they don't know how to ride. Okay. Right? They've, ne they've never worked cattle. They've never done any of the things they're supposed to have done. Little things like that. How do you do a dally with the lead rope around the horn? There's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And uh, so I was learning that stuff, and I and I met the this lady who's now a very good friend of mine an old lady who had this big cattle ranch and no money and she wanted to sell it and uh and i thought here's my chance i can own i can own my own ponderosa and it's a 
I've got it now. It's a 500-acre cattle ranch. Wow. I run uh, about 100 head of cows normally up now, there. How often you go up there? Oh, I'm there about half the time. Now, yeah. how do you maintain, I mean, 500 acres? I mean, how do you maintain that? I mean, the land takes care of itself. The cows are magnificent okay. gardeners. They do just what you want a gardener to do. They crop the place down, and then they fertilize it. They're so, I have such respect for cows now, having grown to, I didn't know anything about cows before this, before I did that film and then ended up owning the ranch. When I did the film, I loved the part so much. I thought, how can I play this guy again? And then I thought, and this was the thinking that led me into buying the ranch. I thought, you know, chances are I'll never get to play this guy again, this character. But why not just become him? Right. Instead of playing him, I'll just be him. And that's what I did. See, that's so cool. Now, now how about the race cars? What's that about? Well, in the, when I was doing Riptide, uh, Toyota does this all every year. They have that Toyota Pro Celebrity Race, and they have gotten so many people into racing. It's a terribly generous thing that they do. They, they wrote me a letter. I think the letter is the same every year to a bunch of celebrities, and they say, have you ever wondered what it's like to be Mario Andretti? And I had wondered exactly that. Were you a fan of racing or just... Absolutely. Okay. Always loved racing. Never knew anything about it. And particularly, I loved racing from the 50s and 60s. And that's the sort of the golden era of racing, even though it was by far the most dangerous era. It was also the era of, of these incredible stories and incredible, you know, Sterling Moss and, uh, and Juan Fangio and Dan Gurney, who's now a friend of mine through the racing. And uh, just extraordinary people and the extraordinary things that they did back then racing now is unfortunately like like a lot of show business has become so much a business right that the the skill the craft there's still a lot of skill but the the art of it and the joy of it is is badly yeah, damaged what amazes you is like when you watch you know if you ever see you know on sports center or whatever they're racing the guys have their their uniforms are all sponsored and the coca-cola is set just right because you know yeah. that coca-cola is paying a ton of money for that oh yeah and he's getting paid and if it's turned it all away and you're going i mean i remember as a kid watching you know when it was aj foy like like the indianapolis 500 was memorial day yeah and then we used to go camping and we had a trail like the camping trailer and that was a big we would watch oh, it I yeah. was a little kid and yeah. I loved all sports but back I think Rick Mears and AJ yes. Foyt and all and you watched it and now it's like it's like yeah, yeah I mean, they killed it yeah, race. Like oh they killed it not- and that's because of a very specific thing and it's and they're doing something very similar to that right now in, in motorcycling too they killed that race because CART which is championship auto racing teams and IndyCar, which is Tony George's series that he created, were in a big fight. They were trying to decide who got to to rule the roost. And those two organizations were fighting with each other very selfishly, and they ruined that race. And it's heartbreaking to anybody who loved it. And the same thing's happening right now with, uh, with motorcycles. There's a race that's gone on since 1937, the Daytona 200. Okay. It's the Indy, It's the Indianapolis of motorcycles now have you ever done any motorcycle pro-am motorcycle racing i i've done some motorcycle racing but mostly i did cars and that was just purely because i i'd watch buddies of mine go motorcycle racing and it would look wonderful and then i'd see them make a mistake and they'd hit the ground and i don't want to do that (laughs) right right (laughs) when you screw up in a race car you've got all that wonderful metal all around you i mean you crash when you go racing it just comes with the territory if you don't crash periodically you're not trying hard enough you're not going fast enough it's that simple and i didn't want to crash on a motorcycle so i've done some i did a, a race in 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 mexico that scared me as badly as anything i've ever done it was called la carrera from ensenada to san felipe wow closed 
road and that year in that race two guys were killed and i got to the end of that race and said that was wonderful i loved it and i'm never going to do that again (laughs) (laughs) what's the fastest you've gone in a race car what if someone said like 180 i mean well i ran the daytona uh 24 hours once in an indy light car which is a normally aspirated uh prototype car and I, i think that was well probably going about 200 on the banking roughly wow that's just and amazing. the thing is, the thing is, your brain waves only go 170 miles an hour. I think okay. now that's a fact. That means that you are going faster than your brain can cope with things. And to give you an example of what that means, and this ultimately meant I was way over my head. I was just lucky that I didn't get into trouble. But Rick Mears once said, you mentioned Rick Mears. He once gave advice to somebody about racing at Indy, and he said, you have to correct correct a problem in the car before it happens. If you wait until it happens, it's too late. So if your car is going to understeer into the corner, into turn three at Indy, for example, you have to correct for that understeer before it understeers because of the speed you're right. going. It's- now, how do you do that? It's, you know, I, I'm always amazed also when I see, you know, when you see these baseball players, they hit a hundred mile per hour fastball. I go to the batting cage and if, you know, if it's 60, you know, you have to have like this in a, some sixth sense of timing. Yes, I agree. Like with baseball, you're sitting there going, yeah, for a hundred miles from here to here, you have to basically know, you have to be reading the guy's Absolutely. mind. Like a racer. And, and that's, yeah. that's faster. And you're actually, yeah. you're in control of a big machine. You don't have a little bat. You have this big machine. Right. There are skills you can learn in life. A lot of skills. And I'm fascinated by skills always and learning them. Motorcycling, race cars, acting. Acting is a skill. Race car driving is a skill. I spent years training as a race car driver. Taking all the schools you can take. But there is an element to all that kind of stuff. That's what you're talking about. That you cannot learn. There's an element. That's where the word talent applies. What is talent? Who knows? But it's some capacity that goes beyond anybody's capability of learning it. So Rick Mears says, very seriously, you have to correct and understeer before it happens. You have to know it's going to happen and correct it before it happens. That fascinates me because I... I don't know what he's talking about. I can't imagine. I I know exactly what an understeer is, and I know exactly how to correct an understeer in a car, but only after... I feel the understeer. It's yeah, it's, and that's it's, and his point is you're in the wall by then, right? You're, now, you're now, in have, pieces. Have you had some bad crashes? Oh yeah. And now yeah. what is? Oh yeah. Well, what is if that? You go racing, you crash. But what is that like? I mean, it's like I, I've been in car accidents before, and yeah. that's like fifty or sixty miles per hour. I'm my friend rear-ended someone, mm-hmm. but at that speed, do you ever just sit there and go, "Holy crap, I might die"? I mean, does that ever cross your mind when you're doing a spin, or has your car flipped, or what's the worst? Oh yeah, all of the above. But it doesn't go through your mind that you're going to die. What what happens? to me and most I've talked to a lot of people this is usually what people who like to race and spend time racing experience everything slows way down so for example often what will happen is right in front of you at 100 miles an hour somebody will lose control of their car so they're sideways spinning in front of you through a difficult corner at 100 miles an hour and what happens is you think ah interesting well now, what shall I do? Let's see. I could go left or I could go right, but he's probably going to. And you have all the time in the world. It's amazing. Time slows way down. Now, I think what's happening, I think, is that, in fact, your brain is speeding way up. Okay. Suddenly, your brain's going and spinning way, way faster. And so time seems to slow down because literally two, three seconds feels like minutes. 
And anybody who's any good in a race car or this is it's amazing always to me how similar acting and racing are. Also, this is true. Anybody on stage who's a good stage actor or in a piece of a long take and film or something, you can describe everything in absolute detail, exactly what happened, you know, because so, you can break it down. You know. Right. So in racing, for one of the rules is if somebody spins in front of you, one of the rules is you point your car right at him and you give it everything you got. Wow. You point right at him and give it all all the power it's got. The thinking is, you don't know where he's going to be when you get to where he is. But the chances are he won't be where he is right now when you get there. So you point right where he is, and it works. I've done it two or three times. It works perfectly. It's just so scary. <laughs> but it's very it's, scary. But yes, it must, it's but, very scary. But and the other thing, it must be a rush. I mean, it must be like, that's, you must uh, feel uh, yeah. something. So now Incredible I, I, rush. I mean, I, acting and racing, it's the same thing. You get into a zone. Not often, but sometimes you get into what they call the zone. Right. And it's this wonderful, sweet place where it seems like you can do no wrong. And that's the rush. That's the incredible rush. When you're, when you're, Paul Newman, I was on the track a couple times with Paul Newman, and, and Newman was a great driver. Newman was world class. He could have been a champion. Everybody agreed if he'd been a race car driver instead of an actor. That's how good he was. But Newman once said the reason he loved racing was it was the only place he got to feel graceful. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Now, I got to ask him. I, I was flipping around. I saw you on Twitter. You tweet. Mm-hmm. And now, there's, there's a project you're funding? Yes. Okay, because yeah. that's a reason. I hit you up on Facebook, but uh-huh. I, I found you, and I think it was, I think Eric Palladino, do you know him? He's a young actor. I think he shared that tweet. And I had, oh, did he? Yeah, I didn't. I, I had met him. Uh-huh. I was walking home, and we were. my girlfriend was going to make homemade chili. And Ooh, I said, good. I, I said, my I said, girlfriend makes so many yeah, jelly I, too. I said, onion rings might be good. And yeah. I stopped at this little foster freeze. And I'm looking at him, I go, you're an actor. And then I follow him on Twitter. And I think he tweeted, what's so the you were, Wait a minute, you're at foster freeze he trying to onion get rings. onion rings? Yeah, just <laughs> on, and I saw him and I go, you look, and he's on in two weeks. He's on <laughs> next right. week. And I said, you look like an actor. And then he followed me on Twitter. And I think he yeah. followed you, but I saw, ah. what's what's the project here? Well, this is an adventure I'm on now, a new adventure for me. And I'm uh, having so much fun with this because all my life as an actor I always wanted to make my own movie and then once I owned that cattle ranch I thought I want to make my own western because that's really what I love and never got to do really I want to make my own western on my own ranch and then after a while I met this lady we were working together and she's a writer she'd never written screenplays but she'd always dreamt of being not only a novelist but a screenwriter and branching out that way and uh, so we started talking and she and I started working on this, but she came up with this wonderful story, a story that I never would have come up with myself to to fit on my ranch so that 90% of the movie could be shot right there on my own land, my own barnyard, my own cows and horses, the whole thing, which makes it so much more efficient, you know, right. and sensible. And I also have a friend who's a DP of television, Donald, you know, worked behind the camera his whole life, but he always wanted to make a movie and he wants... You know, he'd never been able to do that. So we're on this adventure together to make our own movie. The hell with Hollywood. We want to do this movie our way. And uh, and the project is called The Divide, because up where my ranch is, it's, it's on a piece of land called the Georgetown Divide. It's where the American River comes out of the, uh, the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And there are three uh, branches of the American River. And so the two pieces of land that sit each of them between two branches of the river are called the uh, Forest Hill Divide and the Georgetown Divide. I'm on the Georgetown Divide. 
So this movie's called The Divide, and it's about this old man on his ranch. Everything's disintegrating. He's caught up in a terrible drought, which we have been. Yeah. And it's not just a drought of his land, and his cows aren't the only ones threatened by this drought. He's also got a drought of the mind. He's experiencing the beginning of dementia, of Alzheimer's. But this is set in 1973, a time when really nobody talked about that stuff. Yeah, really, they, nobody knew anything about it. It was just, oh, yeah, he's crazy. He's getting old. He's losing his mind. Dementia. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't called Alzheimer's. It was, yeah, because my grandmother yeah. had that. And even dementia was more scientific than anybody. Right. They just say, ah, oh, they're losing their mind. They're old. Just stay away from it. Don't listen to him. Don't pay any attention, you know? So his mind is going. He's estranged from his one child, his daughter, because of an event that's happened in his life. And he's trying to make his life make some sense. And uh, it's a little tiny movie about the drama of ordinary life, which is what I think movies should be about. That's the movies I like. I don't want to watch a movie about a guy with a cape who flies. Right. I couldn't care less about him. Screw it. And I despise the violence in the movies of today. Hollywood just loves to glorify violence more and more and more. You almost can't go to a movie that doesn't involve blood splatter. And it's bad for us as well as insulting i think to audiences so i'm making a movie that would have fit perfectly in the 50s or 40s you know so what's that process like though because it's you're producing it yeah okay producing so, it. i'm so, gonna direct it i'm gonna uh, play now, the part i saw you you directed one episode of riptide mm -hmm. okay yeah, i've been in the dga for years i've done a lot of stage and, okay you know so well, what's it like i mean is it i mean you would be directing because you can be directing cattle i mean i mean i know you you're you do all that cowboy stuff yeah, but, right. but i mean that must be must be crazy because you don't know what they're going to do. You know, they're cattle. I mean, I'm sure, I mean, it's just how do you, I mean, how long is this, are you going to shoot for? Do you have an idea? Yeah, yeah. We have, we've got a whole budget and a schedule. We're going about, we have a Kickstarter campaign. We're raising money. I mean, the chances are I'm going to have to pay, I'm sure I'll pay for at least half of this movie and maybe more. Um, but that's okay. I want to make my own movie. I don't want to, I don't want to make a deal with, with uh, fundraisers in Hollywood because they'll they'll insist I make changes to it and do what they want me to do, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to do what they want me to do. Um, and as far as directing, you know, I, I, I'm confident that I know how to direct this. But the one thing we built into the budget, the only thing that's expensive about this movie, it's a very low-budget film, and it's gonna, we're going to come in well under 400000 for this whole film. But the one thing that... I have put the money on is time. That's the most valuable commodity on a film set. And it's the one thing, even on the most expensive movies, that there's not enough of. They never budget for time. They always budget for other things, it seems to me. I want to be able to be shooting a scene and at the end of the day say, you know what? We're not there. We haven't got this yet. We've got to, we've got to keep working on this. We're going to change the schedule and come back tomorrow and keep working on it. Normally on a film, always on a film, you say, well, it's not as good as it should be. We haven't gotten there yet, but too bad. We're out of time. We're moving on. That's always been my experience. See, that's cool. That's cool. And it's funny because you know, I look at your career and you've, you've been lucky enough where you've constantly worked. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking. You know, I mean, if it was Melrose Place you were on, right. you know, extremely uh, lucky. Spin City, which was, yeah. which you know, what do you like better? I mean, not, not better, but you seem to have a lot more of drama that you've done. However, Riptide was. Not, I mean, Riptide wasn't a comedy, but it wasn't like a serious bang. It was like it was like a fun show, mm -hmm. and you know, Spin City played this fun show. What do you? I mean, what do you? Like? Well, I, I'm not. I'm not as good at comedy 
as uh, as the people who are really good at it. I, it's much harder. It's that's the old cliche, you know. Is who was it that was on his deathbed and he was dying? Uh, oh, some famous actor who did a lot of comedy. And he was dying, and they said, "Does it hurt?" And he said, "Not, not half as bad as doing comedy." <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's, it's way harder. Well, you're a stand-up, right? So I did stand-up you know, for years, and comedy I, and for, is everything that drama is plus something else, right? Right. So whatever that something else is, it's not something that I'm particularly adept at. I've done lots of it, but actually, I'll tell you a great, great story. Uh, do you know Priscilla Barnes? Yeah, yeah. Priscilla, she was on. Uh, she was on one season of Three's Company. Right, right. And she's done lots tons of, of stuff. stuff. Tons of stuff. Very, very good actress, but also supremely good at comedy. I mean, she really knows how to do it. And I was doing. Oh, oh what's that show? Jim, Jim Bridges. Uh, I mean, Jim Burroughs directed all of them. Um, You're not. Uh, it was about the, the, the gay guy and the lady. Two gay guys. Will and Grace. Will yes, and Grace. thank you. Will and Grace. Really good show. Beautifully done. Um, anyway, so I had a part in that. And it was clearly meant to be funny. And I don't even know how I got it, but I got it. And I'm doing this thing. And I was worried because I wasn't sure I could pull it off. And I went to Priscilla and said, help me. And she's a very close friend and somebody I trust completely and uh, here's Priscilla's advice and it was brilliant it was supremely good she knew me and she said alright Perry here's what you do you do that thing in rehearsal while you're working on it do not be funny do not let yourself be funny if people laugh at you immediately do something else change it right away don't let yourself be funny at all I trusted her I did exactly what she said and it was funny. It was great because she knew me and she knew I'd mess it up right. by trying. That's what she knew I'd do. And so she said, basically, do not let yourself try. And it was perfect advice. Now, you played a president in a movie. Mm. I've actually played a couple presidents. Now, what's that like? That must be uh, cool. I mean, that must because it, it, it shows that people, first of all, whenever you see... It shows how people must casting directors and directors and and people who watch how it must they must think of you because you have to have that you know I could never play the president I could maybe play like a press aide you know but you have to have that you know you have that the dapper look but just that look what is that I mean that must be so cool when they go hey you know you you, you want to play the president I mean what's that well it's, it's great it's daunting because I like to feel pretty much every role I play I try to. F- think of somebody that I know that is that part or as close as I can get and I don't know any presidents right. I've never met a president so I'm working I'm sort of shooting in the dark you know it's it's difficult it was very exciting to play it and uh, I felt pretty good about it I, I, I think I've seen other people play presidents where they didn't pull it off of course there have been some that, that pull it off beautifully but uh, but I tried to learn from that I said why didn't they pull it off um um you know, I, I don't even want to suggest names to you of people that I think failed to play the president. But you seem to submer- you seem to submerse yourself in the roles. Now, did you sit there and watch? Like, okay, I'm going to watch Kennedy. Or gonna, did you watch speeches just to try to just get that? Yeah, that in this case, I think thing. I was expected to if to remind you uh, of if of anyone of George Bush. So I, I spent a lot of time watching George Bush and not not trying to sound like him or look like him, but trying to have his demeanor and his attitude. I always felt that, that uh, and it fit for the story, uh, this is the day after tomorrow is the film we're talking right. about, and, and it fit the story that this president would be stumped, would be lost, would be over his head, would not know what to do. 
And frankly, that's the way I thought about George Bush most right. of the time, <laughs> that he was over his head, you know, that he really didn't know what to do. And he would take advice and sometimes get very bad advice. And that's what I was playing there. Now, many years before that, I played basically uh, John Kennedy in um, Captains and the Kings. It's set in a different era, but it's basically based on the Kennedy family. And I was playing the character that would have been John Kennedy. And so, yeah, I studied him and his career quite a lot, too. I mean, that's the fun of it. That's that's the fun of being an actor is you get to play these games that that uh, are so much fun to do. You know, See, you're that, pretending to be somebody else. See, that's so cool. And that's what's going to be also, I bet, when with the uh, the divide, it's going to be great because you're doing, right. something, you're doing something that you love. You actually are a rancher you know yeah. and you're playing yeah. one i mean you don't have alzheimer's but yeah. you know but you're playing something and it must be great also it must be good to sit and i know a guy i know this guy i know a, a specific person up there that is my tro- prototype for this okay. character but the alzheimer's you're right that's now that's something i don't know enough about i've got to study that at much greater length because i feel that this film really has the opportunity to as well be as be a good story and a satisfying two hours for the audience this film i believe has a real opportunity to open people's minds up a bit more about about dementia and about the agony of it well they, they need to because my mom has very bad alzheimer's mm, and really? you know she's in a home in, in delaware i mean not delaware virginia because she's mm-hmm. closer to my sister and there's not not enough people they don't know enough about it and it's there's no you don't really see like your movies going to deal with the struggles of it yeah you don't see TV shows like that. You know, you see, you know, it's it's like TV and the, the dramas, they don't really, I mean, they don't really handle the dark subjects unless it's something like Law or SVU where they sit there and they, they handle, you know, projects, you know, yeah. things that happen. But all, you never really see people talk about Alzheimer's and it's, it's and if it is, I mean, I can't think of the last show I've seen where there's some, I mean, and oh, if they I do, you say like you said earlier, they, they, they treat them like they used to say, oh, they're just, you know, they're just yeah. crazy. Yeah. So it's good you're doing that. Thank you. I, I'm very, I'm so happy about about this uh, story that Jana Brown, my screenwriter, came up with. And it's because of her family. She has somebody in her family with it, too. And this man is just beginning to lose his mind. I mean, he, he's still aware of what he's losing. Uh, he has notes all over his house, for example. My mom was doing that in the early yeah. stages. And it's, you know, she would sit there. And then I would always joke around with her. I go, Mom, you know, you're, you're going to forget where you put the notes because she yeah. would have tons of notes. And oh, yeah. she was sort of a hoarder anyway. You know, she uh-huh. collects stuff. But that's the same thing. And it's, but people don't know about it. There's not enough oh. information out about it. Absolutely. Well, this will, I hope, serve people that, that know about other people with it and care about other people and also the maybe people themselves, you know, because this is a guy trying to, to, to save himself without any help. We have about five minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you, because I was looking at IMDb, and I, it seems like I have a run of guests who have, always, have been on Cold Case, which is a show oh. I love. Cause yeah. That, now... Did you? Did you? Were you the killer on Cold Case? Because I've been getting, I've been getting a lot of the killers. You're the killer. Let me think back. Your name was Stan Williams. In the I was Blackout. not the killer. Okay. I, yeah. I've been getting a lot of killers because I, oh, I really? love that show. Yeah, I watch no, it. I, I was go. not the killer. You thought I was the killer, as I remember. It's a few years ago now. You think I am the killer, but in the end, you. It's not me. It's um. Oh, what's the actress who played my wife in that? I can't remember. Can't remember her name. There you go. See, yeah, yeah it's sexy. You, it's, no, but, I mean, you wonder. I'm, I'm so immersed in the divide these days. I find myself thinking, "Am I developing it?" I mean, that's I, yeah, you know? I know. But now, why wouldn't I remember her name? I can see her face clear as a bell. Because yeah, we, that's we're not even going to try and dig her name up. What is it? Mean, it's got to be different for you because the divide's great. Because you know, you, you usually play a 
upper. You, a lot of times you play an upper crust. Uh, I do, yeah. Uh, thing. So it yeah. must be people must be sitting there. And it must for you. It must be just so damn fun because you're playing. I mean, you're, for you, even though you've had a great career, you're playing almost like completely against what people would expect from Perry yes, King. Yeah. They wouldn't expect. Uh, wait, a cowboy? Because yeah. they don't know. You are a cowboy. Yeah, I, mean, I know. It's true. I, I mean, I, I like to think I am, at least. And and uh, people, it, it's one of the things that, that I try to teach young actors, that uh, you, you've got to sell and merchandise what you have to offer. And it may not be what you want to offer at all. So many actors, I help out with a friend at an acting school, a very good acting school called the American Academy. And I talk to the kids there, and and usually I find that they're running away from the very qualities that make them unique. Right. Uh, there was a young girl there who was clearly Native American, for example, and she was doing everything she could to disguise it. And I said, don't. That's your biggest strength. Go with your strength. In my case, for example, what I can usually sell, what I can usually get people to give me a part to play is sort of a Donald Trump-like character. Right. That's not what I want to play at all but that's what i can sell so that's usually what i end up playing in this case i'm making my own film so i right. get to play what i really want to play which no. is you know an old rattled at the end of his life gary cooper is one way to describe this character now how long is your shooting how long is it gonna be shot for it's uh 30 shooting days okay which is literally about two and a half times as as long as hollywood would probably give me to do and now moment. when's that going to start Next summer, in okay. the dead of the drought of, of next summer, because we're bound to have another drought, I'm sure. That's crazy. Yeah, I've cut my herd down to half the size because of it. I had to. Now, what's the, how? where's the, the campaign at? Where can people find that? Oh, Kickstarter, The Divide. Just just search for The Divide or Perry King on Kickstarter. Okay. Great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah we're close awesome. to the end. We're... I don't know, five days away, six days away from the end. Yeah, I checked that out. And uh, now, now you, you tweet a lot. I, I know you're on Twitter. Do you? I'm starting to. I'm starting to understand that. I'm an old guy, you know. I'm a bit of a Luddite. Uh, didn't really understand technology, <laughs> but the new film technology is exciting. So I want to extend that to other things. I love hard drives. The fact that you don't have to buy film stock. Right. That used to kill the budget for every low-budget film and there was in the world. You know, Even the Lords, we did it on 16 mil because yeah, we couldn't afford that's funny. What's what's your Twitter handle? Uh, I'm changing it right now, so okay. I gotta I gotta swap over. Okay, but if you go if you go to the Divider Perry King, uh, no, you won't find me that way. So you have to go to the Divide on Twitter, okay. and then you'll get it. Well, you gotta go to the Divide then. And now, what else is coming up? Any any roles you're gonna be in the near no, future? No, this is it. This is this is my raison d'etre. So you're just you're, this is you're this putting is all every, I care about everything into well, it. Well, that's not that's not true. I'm about to shoot something on Saturday with a, a director, wonderful director named Fred Ray. He makes very small films. And I I did a Hatfields and McCoys with him, not the big one, but a, a littler. But very good version, better than the the Costner one, I think. Uh, and Fred taught me so much. So I'm doing a part with him mainly because I want to be on the set and learn more from him right. as a director. So on Saturday, I'm going to shoot a, a sheriff part. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you. And we have to find the. Uh, it's been fun. Go to the divide, and then you can you can find him. Donate some money. You know, I mean, it's it's, it's yeah. Anything movies. helps. Donate a buck. Yeah, it's it's a movie. It's a movie. You know, and, and you you can be part of making a movie. That's so it. That's the thing. You know, you can sit there and people can go, oh, you know, Hollywood's bull crap, or but you know, these these campaigns let you be part of a movie. That's and, and exactly right. That's why I have a lot of people who come on the show who are have campaigns. So do that. So please and go at the act it's act of the at the divide on Twitter. 
Yeah, just the divide. The divide. So go yeah. at, the, at the divide. And so check it out. And then when you follow his, uh, when he gets his new new Twitter account, you can go check that out. <laughs> and people, you can follow me on Twitter because I tweet a lot. Follow me uh, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I, I, you know, I tweet sometimes a few times a day, sometimes not for a while, but I always type, I tweet fun stuff when I'm watching football. I, I tweet stuff. So follow me there. Also, if you go to uh, iTunes or Stitcher Radio, Type in one word, Cooper Talk, and all my past episodes are up there, which you can also find at my website, coopertalk.net. And there, I think I have about 308 episodes. So you want to check them out. Uh, iHeartRadio, I'm on now. They're a little behind. I'm new on them. So they're not going to get all my old episodes. They're going to get my new episodes, but they're about 10 behind. So but if you have that app, Go to iHeart. And also, you know, if you if you want to listen, just as I said, my website's great. And I do have an app also. If you go to the Google Play Store, it's type Cooper Talk, and, and you can put it on your phone or your Android device. And yeah, and then send me an email. I'd love to hear from you guys. Cooper at coopertalk.net. I'll always respond to you. And that's about it. i got some great guests coming up for you guys in the next few weeks. Um, remember, follow me at Twitter at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget. Take your vitamins, eat your vegetables, drink your water. You guys have a great weekend.